Look at Mark chapter 7. Uh, this is a passage, Jesus has a lot of conflict with religious peoples and this is with religious people. Uh, and this is one of the big ones. So uh, here from the word of the Lord. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And, this are, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles their father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Excuse me, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach, and it's expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within the heart of man, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he teaches. Lord, we ask that you be with us tonight as we consider this passage, which is instrumental in understanding the difference between being yours and just being really, really, really good. Um, Being religious and being found in you, dear God. Being terrified and trying to be better and having uh, the rest of God. So, dear God, be with us, Holy Spirit. Teach our hearts. We need you to be here. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, on Facebook today, when, when I mentioned the announcement for a large group tonight, I referenced a movie called The Machinist. Has anybody seen this movie with Christian Bale? It's terrifying, isn't it? came out uh, a couple of years before the Dark Knight series, and Christian Bale, uh, it's post-American Psycho, pre-Dark Knight, if you're familiar with his um, uh, filmography. Um, in this movie, he plays this guy named Trevor Resnick, and he's this blue-collar mill worker... And uh, when you meet him, he hasn't slept in an entire year. So he's gone a whole year without sleeping. And I won't spoil the movie for you. The story walks through basically just his days. And as his days unfold, slowly you discover his backstory. But what the movie really is, is a character study. Because when you, as you get to know Trevor, this is what you find out. First of all, obviously he's restless. 
his mind, his heart, his body can't rest. He can't stop for a second. He always has to be doing something. Um, even, even in the middle of the night, he's scrubbing his teeth. He's cleaning his apartment. He's washing his hands. He's showering. He's meticulously trying to control every single circumstance in his life. He's restless. He's also lonely. Nobody ever truly knows who he is. Who he is is really too scary for even him to kind of deal with. Uh, he can't share it with anybody else or with himself. So what he does is in order to feel some sense of connection is he sees a prostitute regularly. And he pretends like real intimacy and real friendship is taking place. So he's restless. He's lonely. He's also fantasizing. Um, he fantasizes about all the good things that he hopes to do. Um, and he also fantasizes he's, he's really out of touch with how un, unhealthy he's becoming. But what's all of those kind of personality aspects are all depicted in his body. His physical body is actually where all of that's shown because Christian Bale, when they filmed this, weighed less than 120 pounds. And if you go and Google image search Christian Bale and the Machinist, you won't recognize him. You won't, it's terrifying to see who he is. And it was really, the director was actually very nervous about what Christian Bale did to his body. Um, but he's, what's happening and the reason that he dieted and the reason he lost all that weight and the re- reason he tro- chose to do like actually real damage to his body is because Christian Bale understood that the physical representation, representation of the character really represented what was going on in his heart, that he was becoming less and less human. <coughs> And the reason why is this, without any spoilers, it's because he can't deal with guilt. And he can't deal with the uncleanness, and he can't deal with the stain and the yuck of just being himself. And this is what Trevor Resnick is. He's an image of our hearts, if the stain's never dealt with. His body, his mind, and his life is a physical illustration of our hearts if the stain of sin and inadequacy is never dealt with. We are restless We are terrified of not being busy. But our restlessness doesn't just show itself in our busyness. If if You've probably seen the most recent Louis C.K. brilliant insight he has about smartphones. Have you all seen this? You know the comedian Louis C.K.? I think he's right when he says that our addiction to social media is our coping mechanism for our fear. So even if we stop being busy for a moment, we can't be by ourselves for a moment because we're afraid of staring at ourselves and finding out who we are. So we have to have Facebook and Twitter and our smartphones and whatever it is. This is me. I can't. I wake up in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock in the morning and I just got to lean over and check Twitter because laying in bed and being alone with myself is terrifying. Right? Um, we can't do it. And so we're relentlessly working to keep our minds distracted, to keep working on our resume, to keep working on our bodies and our social life, maybe even your moral life or your spiritual life, trying to get it all under control. We're relentless. We're restless. We're lonely. We're around a lot of people all the time, but never truly known because we can't let anybody see really who we are. We can't even be honest with ourselves about what's there. So we have lots of friends, but we're hardly known. We also fantasize, just like Trevor, fantasize about the life that we will get to, the goals we will accomplish, that one day everything's going to be better. And our humanity, like Christian Bale's body, is emaciated. Um and that we are in the process of becoming less and less human. And our hearts are screaming for life, and our hearts are screaming to be known, and screaming for reality to actually be dealt with. But busyness and distraction are functionally pillows that we place over the mouth of our hearts so we don't have to hear that screaming anymore. 
right? We don't want to hear the cry of our hearts anymore, and we just want to go on and keep controlling everything. And what we're really afraid to say is that something is not right inside of me. My heart is an embittered, dark place. There's a lot of self-absorption in it. And we are too afraid to deal with that real issue. And so what we came up with to deal with it is called religion. And this is what I mean by religion. I'm using it in a pejorative sense. A series of external behaviors that allows us to think that we've tamed our hearts. A series of external behaviors that allows us to think, all right, I've tamed kind of this beast, this thing I can't control. It's fences, it's restraints, it's disciplines that we believe if we put them in place, they have the power to restrain us and to stop our evil hearts. We know, we we actually feel that we can't really change, but we can restrain ourselves. And that's what religion is. And I'm not going to go into this long, but if you're here and you're, Maybe you're wondering, there's, there's that debate of, you know, are humans intrinsically bad or intrinsically good? And you can clearly see what Jesus thinks in this text. And I know that's a more complex conversation. But, but let's be honest for a second and at least admit that when, a lot of times when we're saying humans are intrinsically good, practically what most of us mean is most of us can avoid committing felonies. That's what we really mean. Most of us have the restraint to stop committing a felony. But when you read this list that Jesus, when he describes our hearts, if you stop and read it, from the heart come evil thoughts. Yeah, that's there. Right? Sexual immorality. Yeah, that's there. Theft. Yep. Murder. That's hatred. Adultery. Coveting. Wickedness. Deceit. Yeah. Yeah. All of those. Sensuality. Envy. Slander. Pride. Foolishness. Yes. Yes, those are in us. Those are in here. Can I avoid, can you avoid committing a felony? Probably most of us in this room can. Some of us I'm not so sure about, but we won't name names. Johan, but I'm just kidding. I know Johan well. Um, But are the, so yeah, we can avoid doing socially heinous things. Are the things of this list in our heart? Absolutely. And so you can create intellectual objections to that idea that our hearts are broken, but at the end of the day, let's be honest with ourselves. We feel unfit, we feel unclean, we feel dirty, and you know it, we all know it, because we stare into the mirror of our lives and we don't like what we see. We stare into the mirror of our lives, of the body of work we've put together that is our life, and we don't like what we see. And there's one of two ways to deal with that. There's one of two ways to deal with the heart that we see when we finally stare into the mirror. And the first one's religion. And it makes sense. Put fences around your heart. Put up walls. Put up restraints. So you won't disqualify yourself by letting your heart get out of control. If I'm disciplined enough, if I keep it caged, I'll be okay. And I will be found to be the right sort of person. And that's what the Pharisees want. They want God to find them to be the right sort of person. This is one of the major principles of the Bible, and this is maybe the overarching point, or one of the overarching points of the Old Testament. It's this. To enjoy and be secure in the company of anyone, you have to be dressed appropriately. To enjoy and be secure in the company of God, you have to be dressed appropriately. You have to be clean, you have to be pure, you have to be holy. And if you're not a Christian, you might think that this is one of the things that you don't like about Christianity, that God is holy and only permits holiness within His presence. But 
That's how every relationship works. You always dress according to the person you're going to meet with, whether it's a romantic interest, whether t- seniors who are getting interviews. All, you, at all times, you're always trying to look the appropriate way for the impending relationship, for the relationship you're fixing to move towards. And God's no different. In fact, the reason that you do that for all those other relationships is because we're made in God's image. We're learning something about God when, guess what, you dress up to go to a job interview when you dress up to go to an inauguration, when you dress up to go out on a date. God's teaching us something. He's saying, see, when you go and meet with somebody of status, you have this instinct to look the right way. I'm teaching you about what it means to relate to me. You know, to garner the favor and enjoy the presence of somebody, you have to be clean. Well, that's the Pharisees. But what the problem is, is our problem is that their heart is a beast. Right? What am I going to do? What am I going to do if I know that my heart will betray me? If I know that if God sees it in my heart, He'll know who I am. It's a logical response. I'm going to be incredibly disciplined. I'm going to institute restraints that look like super piety. The laws that they're referencing here are actually not the Old Testament laws from Leviticus, but they're rabbinic tradition. He calls them the traditions of men, the commandments of the elders, uh, or the traditions of the elders, the commandments of men. Uh, what they did is, this was rabbinic tradition where they multiplied, actually, the Levitical cleanliness laws. They went above and beyond and said, no, 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 it's so much more. Let's not just settle for those. Let's be super clean. Let's be super pious. Let's be super religious. And so in their mind's eyes, they're not merely clean because they went above and beyond Old Testament code. They're super clean. And Jesus wants nothing to do with them. He wants to do nothing to do with them for two reasons. Because religion only treats the symptoms and not the problem. And secondly, because religion actually exacerbates the problem. Jesus wants nothing to do with these super religious people. Pharisees, y'all, were not mean people. They would intimidate all of us. We would all aspire to be like them because of how devoted they are to self-discipline and to holiness and to obedience. But Jesus wants to have nothing to do with them because... Their religion treats the symptoms and not the problem. And not only does it not treat the problem, it actually exasperates it. Religion is the thing that we use to get our heart in check, right? To get our life in check. Because we're too afraid to actually get into the cage and tangle with our heart. So what religion does is it rarely actually asks you to do what God wants from you, but it, also, but it often asks you to do the things that are going to help you feel good about yourself. Rarely ask you to do actually what God wants from you, but it is always asking you to do the things that make you feel good about yourself. So here are the Pharisees. Not only do we not eat unclean food, we go to extra lengths to maintain cleanliness, rules above and beyond what God commanded, the traditions of elders, the commandments of men. How impressive is that? Right? How good can you feel about yourself? If you're going way above and beyond all the other people who identify themselves as Christian, as God's people, as religious... Right. What are the impressive, pious practices that we believe that if we practice enough, they're going to make us feel acceptable? Right. What are the things that are the traditions of men, the commandments of elders, things that aren't in the Bible, but we've determined these are the marks, these are the metrics of somebody really devoted to the Lord? Right. Here's the one I hear more often than anything else, my quiet time life and the consistency of it. Right. How impressed are you someone who reads and prays multiple times a day, meditates on the Bible multiple times a day. How guilt-ridden are we when we talk to that person? 
and we know that we're not? How afraid are we of our inconsistency? That's become the metric for the Christian life, is how often you read your Bible and how much you pray through it. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that practice. It should be a life-giving privilege, something we enjoy doing. But most people don't treat it like a life-giving privilege. The way most of us relate to it is it's this begrudging duty that we're supposed to do because it's the metric of whether or not you're Christian enough. Right? Okay, here's I've pointed this out before, but it bears repeating. What you're saying is there were no mature Christians before the printing press. Right? Guess what? Nobody was having a daily quiet time in their Bible before the printing press, except for like the local town clergy who had the one scroll. He probably did read it actually all day. But nobody else was. So are you saying there were no mature Christians before the printing press? All right, that's a tradition of man that we've made the metric for Christian faith. Right? Partying. Here's the other one. Your, your, the metric for your acceptability as a religious person has to do with your proximity to the party scene and all that entails, right? Okay, a lot of problems with it. And again, I'm not endorsing everything that goes on at the party, and you can make draw your own conclusions that are biblical. I'm not going to write all the qualifiers for you, but I'll tell you this much. The Bible endorses parties more than it speaks against them, and it actually endorses parties that last several days. Actually, God probably looks at what happened here on Saturday night and thinks like, they actually kind of suck at partying. Now, I'm not, again, I'm just not going to kill this sermon with qualifiers. You know the qualifiers, but I'm telling you this. God actually loves partying, and Jesus was accused of being somebody who parties too much by the religious people. He was actually hanging out with all kinds of people that we think we're supposed to be far away from. Right? Quiet time life, partying. Here's the next one, the I songs. This is what's happened over the last hundred years. The songs sung in church have, been, have moved from being songs that actually sang the glories of God and what He's done, and more and more and more the songs have become what I will do. That's what the primary actor is in a lot of the songs maybe you sing. It's not everywhere, but it's in a lot of places. We sing songs about what I'm going to do for God, what I'm going to do for Jesus, how I'm always going to be devoted to Him, how my heart's 100% devoted to Him. That's appropriate sometimes, but notice... In a lot of places, I've noticed more and more and more the scale is heavily weighted into the primary actor in our worship is not God, but ourselves. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to pacify our guilt with promises back to God. We think the solution to our heart problem is promising God that we're going to do better. I mean, it fired up about my promise to do better. It can look like a lot of different things, these traditions of men, these commandments of men, traditions of the elder, voting a certain way, being in enough Christian things. And it really is this posture that the evil in the world is out there, and if I get far away from it, I'll be acceptable to God. If I build up fences, I'll be clean. Okay, what about the incarnation? Think about what happened in the incarnation. Jesus goes from the throne room in heaven down into a place that's dirty, that's filled from top to bottom with unclean people. What about the incarnation would lead you to believe that the goal in life is to get as far as possible away from unclean people? The main thing Jesus does is move towards unclean people. That's the main, that's, that's the narrative of the Bible. One of my professors always used to say it, here's what happens in the Bible. There's God, there's man, God moves this way. 
That's the summary of Scripture. If you looked at us, if, if somebody was staring in on the outside at us Christians, they might think that the summary of Jesus' law is read the Bible, don't party, and sing about yourself. Right? The summary of God's law is love God and love your neighbor. But those are activities of the heart. And that's why we don't tend to those. And we substitute love God and love your neighbor for read your Bible, sing about yourself, and don't party. We want to tell Jesus, I read my Bible and I didn't party, and he's going to ask you, did you love your neighbor? Were you a good friend to sinners, to tax collectors, to prostitutes? That's what he cares about. He's going to ask you, has your heart grown in love for me? Has worship with God's people become just the delight of your soul? That's what he's going to ask you. And see, those are things that you can only do from the heart. The other things anybody can actually do. In some ways, you need to ask yourself, are you being religious enough? And I know what the answer is because I know what the answer is for me. And the answer is no. Is it working? It's not working for me. And I know it's not working for you because we're treating the symptoms and not the problem. And that's why Jesus calls the Pharisees a hypocrite, appearing religious on the outside, but a hard heart on the inside. A hypocrite is someone who wore a mask. This is actually the word used for actors. Clean on the outside, but someone totally different on the inside. So religion, it treats the symptoms and not the heart of the problem. But secondly, it actually exacerbates the problem. Not only did they not keep the law, they did the exact opposite of the law. And this is what Jesus is talking about in verses 9 through 13. He says, in your attempt at religion, you actually end up doing the exact opposite of what I wanted you to do. I've called you to honor your father and mother, but you created this new rule, this rule called Korban, and it's where you could take your money and dedicate it to God. How religious does that sound, to dedicate all your money to God? And he says, you do that, and then when you're mon- when you're Father and mother are in need. You say, I can't take care of y'all. I've dedicated all my money to God. How religious, how pious does that sound? And Jesus is so frustrated. He's like, you use your super religion to actually do the exact opposite. To move away in loving and honoring your father and your mother. Not only does religion not make you clean, it actually inhibits the very thing Jesus wants you to do. Here's what it might look like in our lives. How many of us are so busy doing Christian things that we're no longer a good friend to the non-Christians we know? (coughs) So addicted to think that we're really Christian because we go to so many things and we neglect the main thing that Jesus loves, which is being a really good friend to people who don't know Him. That's the main thing Jesus loves. Remember, God, unclean people, He moves this direction. That's the summary of Scripture. And here we are. We think we're clean and we're just trying to get away from the unclean people. So we, under the guise of being super Christian, we've run away from the people Jesus loves. Under the guise of being good stewards of our opportunity at Stanford and our school, under the guise of being a responsible student, you neglect the big things that Jesus is all about. Loving your friends. Are you too busy to be a good friend? Because that takes time. But the other thing we neglect is actually worship. Too busy to join God's family for worship. 
So under the guise of being really responsible, we neglect the very things God wants, the good things. Here's an easy one. We want to tell somebody, we know that we should tell somebody the truth about things, but under the guise of protecting their hearts or not wanting to hurt their feelings. We, we, we no longer are truth tellers. Right? We actually will use all these things that appear like we care and like we're religious and like we're Christian to actually neglect the weightier matters of the law, the main things God wants from His people. Our religion never makes us clean. It actually leads us away from the life that Jesus did, in fact, calls us to. And that's why Jesus quotes Isaiah. And He says, this kind of religion, it honors me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Paul in Colossians 2 says this. He talks about the religious people are going to say religion is all about insisting on self-discipline and it will look very impressive. Very impressive. But it will have no power to restrain the flesh. It will be empty and it will be vain because it doesn't deal with the heart. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, God tells Samuel, people look on the external appearances, but I look on the heart of man. In some ways, that's intimate. We need to consider that. God's actually not looking at your pious activities. He's looking at your heart in the midst of all of it. What if God, you knew God was only looking at your heart in the midst of everything you're doing or trying to do, the ways you're trying to be religious, the ways you're trying to be a Christian? Because that's what he sees. That's what he's staring at. And that's why Jesus says there's nothing on the outside of man that by going into him makes him unclean. All these external rules don't deal with the heart It's what comes out of the heart that makes us unclean. And if religion, if discipline, commitment to pious rules are powerless to change our hearts, then what hope do we have? And the the answer actually comes when Jesus addresses probably one of the more confusing questions that a lot of people have about the Bible. That's what's cool about this. A question a lot of people have, I, I spent time today with a guy who said, why are there those weird rules in the Old Testament that don't seem to apply in the New Testament? All the ritual, the cleanliness laws, things like that. And Jesus actually answers that head on in this passage. And in answering that, he tells us, what is there to be done about our hearts? Is there hope? So what are those rules, what are those laws in the Old Testament that are fulfilled by Jesus? I.e., what it means is that they were teaching tools that, are no long, that we're no longer bound by. And which are the laws that are moral laws that speak to the permanent structure of humanity, that carry on? past the Old Testament and are still in effect today? Well, the answer is actually very simple. If you read through the New Testament, it actually specifically points out which are the moral laws, the one that structure humanity permanently, and which are temporary rituals. It actually reinforces all the moral law, and also in Jesus and Paul, the New Testament writers are constantly speaking and are clearing. Uh, they're constantly reaffirming Laws about personal property and about justice and idolatry and greed and sexuality and truth-telling and love, and that all those things still hold today, this moral structure. But they also specifically address, especially in the book of Hebrews, but right here, the ritual laws of worship and why those don't hold today. Verse 19, Jesus tells us, Thus he declared all foods clean. Now something's happening right there. He's not saying those laws were meaningless. Jesus is in this act saying, Now that law stops. He's declaring them unclean. And the New Testament's clear that he's not wiping away the ritual laws of the Old Testament. What he's doing is he's fulfilling them. 
And you, the way you need to think of it is like this. Paul in Galatians 3.24 calls the laws, these, these ritual laws of the Old Testament, a guardian or a teacher. He says they're like a teacher. And you know what? Your sixth grade teacher taught you a lot. But you know what else? You don't need your sixth grade teacher today anymore. And that's exactly what Paul says about the Old Testament rituals. They were a teaching tool to demonstrate the nature of reality to you. But once you get those principles and what those principles are now manifest in the person of Jesus, you don't need your sixth grade teacher anymore. Grateful for a role. What the dietary and the cleanliness laws were in the Old Testament is they were physical illustrations of our spiritual state before God. They were saying, they were an illustration that said, sin does to the soul what dirt does to the body. It makes it unclean. And what that also means is this, that the bathing, the washings that take place in the Old Testament, the cleansing, the washing away of dirt on the body, is also what Jesus does for our souls. Religion can't carry away the uncleanness of our heart, but Jesus can. Jesus is saying, why don't you all see me in all of this? Jesus did it at the cross. He carried away the unfitness and the brokenness of our hearts. This is Romans 5. While we are still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how the heart is dealt with. This is the good news. This is the sweetness. This is our chance at change, even though it's slow and messy. The heart is dealt with not by self-discipline, but by being loved. It's dealt with not by self-discipline, but by being loved. Our hearts are healed by love. And love begins with taking the stain away, taking our uncleanliness away. How do our hearts change? They, they, our hearts change by experiencing love. That's what has the capacity to change us inside. Being afraid has the capacity to change us on the outside. Being afraid is why most of us are at Stanford. Because fear can make you really successful and can make you work really hard on the outside. But it doesn't change you on the inside. It dehumanizes you on the inside. Being loved, that changes you. One of, one of my great friends at South Carolina, a student named Ryan, he always talked about, he always referred to the moment that God, Ezekiel 36 him. He coined the verb Ezekiel 36, to be Ezekiel 36. And that's because Ezekiel 36 was his favorite chapter of the Bible. And this is what it says. God spoke to Israelites and he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You know, your heart, our heart is softened, it is tamed, it is made gentle, it is made kind, it is made patient. It is given rest. It becomes compassionate and loving again by being loved. There are two kinds of clean rooms that happen in the Wood household. When we ask our girls to clean their rooms, there are two types of clean rooms that show up. And they look really, really similar from the bedroom door. But the way you can tell which kind of clean room it is is in the face of the girl when you meet her when she's done. Follow me on this. You're thinking, where's Brink going on this? It's going to make sense. The way you can tell whether it's the good clean room or the bad clean room is in the face of the girl when it's done. Because one clean room, when she's done, it's, Daddy, can I be done? And they want to get on to whatever next activity it is. 
right? Daddy, I'm done. And you look in the room, and it looks really similar. They're frustrated. They have five other things that they want to get on, that they want to move on to. They're frustrated that you held them back from doing the things they really wanted to do. And you look at the room, and it looks clean, but here's what's true. They're upset with you because they had to clean it up. And also, when you open the closet and look under the bed, there's just crap crammed in there. <laughs> right? The other kind of clean room you meet every now and then at the Wood House is, Daddy, I'm done, and they run and jump into your arms. And this is like the sweet clean room. This is the clean room we all long for. They really did their best. They wanted you to be happy with their room. And you open the closet, and the clothes are actually decently folded for seven-year-old girls. And you look under the bed, and they, it's not perfect, but they gave their best shot at actually like getting crap under, out from underneath the bed instead of shoving it all underneath there. But see, the rooms actually will look the same on the outside. The way you can tell the difference without even walking in the room is the way they interact with you afterwards. Because the second room, the clean room, where they actually did it and they loved it, they jump in your arms and they want to be with me afterwards. And we snuggle and we hug and we watch whatever it is. Our favorite show right now is Duck Dynasty. They love Uncle Cy. But they want to be with me afterwards. Now here's the question. What produces those different types of rooms? The one where they're frustrated and bittered and it's not really clean and they just want to go do what they want to do versus the room that's actually genuinely clean and they want to be with me. Here's the difference between those two rooms. It's me. It has very little to do with them. It has a lot to do with me. When I'm angry and I'm embittered and I'm impatient and I'm frustrated and I'm not a good father in this moment, I threaten them and I'm upset with them, and I tell them to go clean their room. And that makes for a crappy room cleaning, and it makes for a crappy relationship later. And their heart is hardened toward me because my heart is hardened toward them. But the other room, and it happens every now and then, and I wish it happened more because it really lays, the fault lays with me, is when we all clean together, we're all cleaning the house together on, Sunday, on a Saturday morning, And we all clean it because we know later in that day we're going to do a lot of good things together. We're going to go get ice cream and all the promises and the happiness of the things that are going to happen later in the day are not contingent on how well you clean your room. It's simply a family activity of we're going to do this and then we're going to have fun together. It's all unconditional. But it all starts with me and my attitude towards them and my heart towards them. And when I love them well, their heart has changed. And when I have a hard heart towards them, their heart is hard towards me. The difference is me. The angry and bitter me produced something in them that looked like a clean life, but it left them frustrated and embittered in their hearts. The kind, affectionate, free gift-giving me, which I wish happened more often, it produces in them a genuinely clean room, and even things under the surface are brought out and dealt with, and they're all from a heart of love that wants to be with me afterwards. It was actually me that changes their hearts. And the reason so many of you are frustrated is because you still think God is angry and out to get you. You've concocted an image of God that He's embittered towards you, impatient with you, and He's threatening and withholding you. And that's why your heart towards Him is, I'm going to do this religious crap you want me to do, but then let me get on to what I want to do. So I'm still going to appease you because I still live in your world because I still want to consider myself religious, but I don't like you and I want to get on with what I want to do. So let's just say we're on good terms. And Jesus is saying this to you. This is love. Not that you loved me, but I loved you. And his love for you actually even preceded the cross. We sang that in the first song. 
Father long before creation. He covered us. He promised us his love. Jesus is, this is the most important thing. He loved you first. He's not angry with you. He's not impatient. He's not embittered towards you. Last week, Nicole and I were talking about how we always want to know, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? Or what are we supposed to do with this? What, how do I then move forward, right? If this is all true, how do I move forward? And this sounds great, right? Okay, God loves you. What am I supposed to do? And this is what you need to do tonight. Here's the application for the sermon. Listen. John one twenty nine. Behold. When the Bible says behold, that's a command. Stop. Listen. Stare. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He takes away your sin. Don't do anything else tonight other than this. Don't think you need to do anything else tonight other than this. Hear this. God loves you. He really loves you. He loves you. The Father of creation loves you. He doesn't not love you. He really loves you. That's all you need to do tonight is hear that, is explore that, think about it. Because when you get that He just loves you, that He sent His Son to die for your sins, that He's made a way for you, that you're adopted, that you have a place at the Lamb's Feast, that all good things work together for those that are His children. And He just loves you. That's what begins to change our hearts. And if you're here and you don't know what to think and you're wondering, that sounds good and I want in on this, here's the only requirement that God, if you're skeptical and you're wondering, here's the only requirement that you have to meet in order to receive His love. It's just to need it. That's the only thing He requires. We sang that tonight as well. It's to simply offer Him in your heart and with your mouth. My heart is hard and I am not clean. Jesus, will you take away my stain? That's all He requires. It's just to need Him. And He will. And in Christ, you have no more stain. Sin no longer stains your character. You no longer have to worry about standing before the judgment seat of God. If you are in Jesus, you don't have to ever worry about the judgment seat of God. You don't need to stare in the mirror anymore and be upset with what you don't see. You just need to hear the good news that this, this is the application of the sermon tonight. Just hear, God loves you. That's it. God loves you. Let's pray.